0: Philippians 2, 1 through 11, page 1165. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men.
1: the death of the apostles. The the New Testament church really struggled. Uh, I, w- I wanted to say it struggled, but may it may be more appropriate to say they struggled. Right, the church is made up of people. They struggled with heresy infiltrating the church, and so there was a constant struggle early on. And they fought this. Our, our early church fathers fought this heresy uh, in order to articulate truth and we're the beneficiaries of their labors and as a heresy would arise they would meet together in these ecumenical councils and they would defend the truth and then they would put out statements or, or creeds if you will combating that error they had to deal with errors in in regard regarding the deity of Christ and The Incarnation, and of course we're talking about the Incarnation this month. The Incarnation is an event in history where God left heaven and took on flesh. And it's one of the pivotal events in all of history. A baby was born in Bethlehem, but this was not just a normal baby boy. This was God, Jesus, both God and man. This incarnation is the act whereby the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, without ceasing to be what He is, took into union with Himself what He before that act did not possess. He took on flesh. God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human nature and became a man. And last week we we talked about and learn that the second person of the Trinity has always existed. And we looked at the prophecies that foretold that before the beginning days of creation, the Son would become a man and save sinners from their sins. And today we'll look at Philippians chapter 2 to understand what it means for the Son of God to take on flesh and dwell among us. So three points today. The first is the incarnation did not result in a loss of divine attributes. Philippians chapter 2, as Morgan read that text for us, the, the context for this passage. Paul is, he started this church on his second missionary journey, where if you remember Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth, and the Philippian jailer were born again. And he goes back on his third missionary journey to help that church, and this church had given him much joy. Even though they were very poor, they were quite generous. And even though they were persecuted, they were faithful. But there were some issues in that church, just like there are issues in our church. See, some in the church needed to be humbled. And if you read through the letter, you'll find there's even some ladies quarreling. See that in chapter 4. Look at verse 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Hey, Paul is saying, you need to be humble. We need to learn from the example of Christ. And what did he do? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So I want to think about just a moment. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In the form of God. Last week, we talked about Jesus. He was fully God, and he has been fully God forever, the second person of the Trinity. There always has been a son. There's never been a time when there was not a second person of the Trinity. And so when Jesus took on flesh, he never ceased to be divine. And as we read the the words of scripture and if it, 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 it seems to be that Jesus is is doing things that God only God could do it's because he is God and one of these councils that took place one took place one of the earliest ones took place in Nicaea in 325 AD and what happened this council opposed Arianism Arian was a A heretic it claimed that jesus was not divine he was not god but he was a created being but we see very clearly in the new testament in colossians chapter 2 verse 9 speaking of christ for in him in christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily again in colossians 1 chapter chapter 1 verse 15 he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation in hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 Speaking of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see Jesus' divinity. He is divine. It's on display. We see His omniscience in the New Testament. Jesus is visiting Samaria. and He meets a woman... At the well. You might remember that story, John chapter 4, verse 16 through 19. Jesus, he speaks to this woman Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus says, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have, now have the one you're living with now, is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Right? He told her her business, didn't he? Or we see his divinity on display at the Last Supper as he told his disciples they're all going to fall away from him, and Peter obnoxiously says, I'll never fall away. And then Matthew 26, verse 34 records Jesus' reply to Peter. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Or we see his divinity on display when he walks on water in Matthew 14 or he heals the leper in Matthew chapter 8 or John chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus who was dead three days. He raised him from the dead and gives him life. His divine nature is eternal and had no beginning, being from eternity and Jesus, the Son of God, had this divine nature. But when the incarnation happened some 2000 years ago, divinity took on humanity, his human nature began when Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the virgin Mary. So we have the incarnation both pre- both natures being present the divine nature and the human nature in galatians chapter 4 verse 4 we saw this last week but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of woman born under the law so we see jesus this Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh, becoming a baby, being born in Bethlehem, being raised in Nazareth, and walking this earth. He did ministry for about three years before he gave up his life and was put to death on the cross. But the incarnation did not result in a loss of his divine attributes He was still fully God. The second thing we need to know from this text is that the incarnation resulted in divinity being united with sinless humanity. And we think about human nature for us, for many of us, most of us, maybe all of us. When we say human nature, we think that's a negative connotation. We think about human nature, we think about flesh, we think about sin, we think about rebellion. We think about disobedience. But Jesus, he took on a fully human nature. He was fully God. He was fully man. And we don't say that he was merely human. If you say he's merely human, that would mean he's only human. That means he couldn't be omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent and be human at the same time. No, see, the Son became fully human. That's why we a best way to describe that. He was fully human. And being fully divine and fully human is a, is a divine truth that the church fathers wrestled with. And some, during the time of the early church, preached that Christ wasn't fully human, and others advocated that Jesus, he had two persons, one divine and one fleshly and one person. But there was another council in Chalcedon, 451 AD stated that Jesus Christ is recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as parted or separated in two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for some of you, you say, well, you know, I went to church today and I didn't learn anything new. Well, the coexistence of Christ's two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, is called the hypostatic union. All right, Jason said, don't go home saying the preacher didn't teach me anything new today. All right, it's called this a technical term, the hypostatic union, when Jesus, the Son of God, who had a divine nature, became human and took on human flesh. Look at chapter 2 of Philippians again. He was in the form of God, but he emptied himself. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Well, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, it cannot mean that he emptied himself of his deity or even part of his deity. One writer said that would be incarnation by divine suicide. And sometimes we, we, we refer to this as him laying aside his deity. But that's not, I don't think that's the best way of saying it. I don't think that's true. He didn't lay aside his his characteristics or his attributes of his deity. I think what happened when Jesus took on flesh is that his divine nature is veiled. It's hidden, if you will. It's still there in the person of Christ but it's veiled think about it if Jesus as as he took on flesh if he's not omnipresent if he's not omnipotent if he's not omniscient then he no longer can be God because what does it mean to be God part of what it means to be God is to be omnipresent omnipotent or omniscient so he didn't lay aside these characteristics when he took on flesh but he emptied himself by addition And it says that he took on the form of a servant. So by taking on human nature, God the Son was now voluntarily allowing himself to be subject to all the things that we're subject to in this fallen world. He got hungry and thirsty and tired and he was hurt and wounded and he even experienced death. And these are all things that are impossible for God to do as divine? Does God get tired? Does he die? But see what Jesus did by taking on human nature. Jesus could experience these, these things, these lowly things, right? Even death that he experienced for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Speaking of his human nature, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Right, he's in glory. He's Lord. He's sovereign over all. Right, He owns everything, yet for your sake he became poor. He took on flesh and became a man, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 again. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, when you see that... It, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That didn't mean that Jesus was sinful. He took on human nature, but he was not sinful. Right? Unlike you and I. So what did it, it look like for Jesus to be fully man? We'll read about it in the scriptures, and we see that he had a true body. He is, he was fully human. Again, he hungers, he thirsts. Jesus experienced weariness and he knew, he knew pain. He knew what it was like to grow, right? Growing pains. And he perspired. He shed tears. He was mortal. And in death, he was buried. Just like you and I will be. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He took on flesh. He became a man. And we're not saying that Jesus was wrapped in flesh. right? He's a divine being, wrapped in flesh, enveloped in it. No, we're saying that everything it means to be human, he became. He took on soul and body and a will. He not only had a, a fully human body, but he had a human mind. And so this is kind of it's, it's really easy for us to think about Jesus being divine, but sometimes it's hard for us to think about him being a man. He was human in capacity in the manner of knowing things. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 and verse 52. And the child, speaking of Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So he grew just like our children. As we look around and just as they're growing. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, speaking about His second coming, He says, No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? In having a human nature, He was at finite in knowledge. His divine nature, we say, is eternal. He's always been and always will be, but it had no beginning. It, it was from eternity past. It's always existed. But when the incarnation happened some 2,000 years ago, divinity took on humanity. His human nature began, like I said earlier, when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He had a human will and human desires. Matthew 26, 39. Jesus had these dilemmas like we do. Think about in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me, speaking to his disciples. Yeah, he had a human will. He had desires. Look at Matthew 26, 39. My Father, you remember this text, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And that not as I will is an expression of Jesus sinless fear of death. Was Jesus afraid? You think about, no, Jesus wasn't afraid. He's God. No, he was fearful. Maybe even more fearful than we would become, right? He's experienced the glories, and now he's going to experience separation. I think about John Wayne. You can't have a really good sermon without a John Wayne quote, right? (laughs) John Wayne, we always think about him being this iconic figure that didn't, Uh, that wasn't afraid but he said courage isn't the lack of fear but courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway right and some of you are struggling with that thinking about Jesus being fearful but you read that text his prayer in the garden Jesus in his human bodily form he was afraid He was angry and he had sorrow. Jesus cleared the temple. Do you remember that? Turned over the money changers' tables and ran them out. But he was also sorrowful at the death of Lazarus that he's seeing those sisters weep and being heartbroken and them grieving. What did Jesus do? He wept, right? Jesus... He's the God man. He's fully divine and fully human. It's interesting because he was human. He was limited, right? In his human nature, he was limited. He could only be at one place at one time, right? But yet, Matthew 18, verse 20, speaking to his disciples. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them.
0: It's
1: kind of interesting. In this divine nature, he can be omnipresent, but in his human nature, with his human nature, he's limited to being in one place at one time. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus upholds the universe by his divine power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But at the same time, he is learning and growing and suffering. Think about Jesus being a baby and his mother caring for him in her arms, but at the same time, simultaneously, being the sustainer of the universe. He didn't lay aside His divine power because if He does that, what happens to the universe? It collapses. What happens to Mary's blood pressure? It's not sustained. You're scratching your head and you're scratching your head along with me. Isn't that amazing? And I I, I voiced this yesterday to, to a couple people. I think the incarnation is one of the most amazing things to ever happen I mean is this as big a miracle as the resurrection maybe so I mean how is it that he can tell Peter that he'll deny him three times and yet not know when he's coming back Jesus is the God man and remind you that he's the God man forever Sometimes we have this idea that while he was walking this earth, he had a human body, but then when he resurrected, he ascended to the Father. Now he's back in spirit form. But that's not true. He's the God-man forever. He remains the God-man with two natures in one person. He took on flesh, and he'll keep that forever. He, as a human, sits at the right hand of the Father while at the same time being divine. The third thing that we learn, I think, is that the incarnation is a mystery. And that mystery should propel us, compel us to worship and adore him. Think about the Trinity. You got all that figured out? It's kind of mysterious, isn't it? Or what about this human responsibility and, and divine sovereignty? You got that figured out and you explain that to everybody in a pretty easy formula? That one's kind of complicated too. It's a mystery, isn't it? How we're saved, it's God, all of God's work, but yet we're responsible for repenting and believing, even though our repentance and faith is given to us by the Lord. Yeah, that's that's a mystery, like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we have the incarnation as well. It is a mystery. And, and, And there is wiser more eloquent folks who have put this together in a a little bit neater package but i've I've read a bunch you look at my desk yesterday it was just books and books and piles and all my stuff from seminary and notes and da 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 and that's not counting all the the websites you you see and it's a mystery In, in first timothy chapter three verse 16 great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness the mystery is the mystery. And in the first line, he was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. It's a mystery. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. His earthly ministry. It's a mystery. And what should that cause us to do? To marvel, to praise, to adore him even more I read we read earlier 1st John chapter 4 verse 2 I want to read that again and as we transition into application and we're going to transition into taking the Lord's Supper by this you know the Spirit of God every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God we have to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God that he was divine and he took on flesh. Every person I think that doesn't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh while continue being divine is not from God. Amen. Psalm ninety six verse nine. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. I think we should marvel this Christmas season at what the Lord has done. How wise, how clever, how incredibly wise of God to devise such a means for our salvation. The second person of the Trinity, the, the Son of God, divine, taking on flesh, and at the same time, being, he was divine, but he was also fully human. And by that and through that, we are saved.